We've been talking the last uh, several weeks about the economy of God. And the reason that I kind of titled this subsection on our core values and principles, the economy of God, is because it's a much bigger kind of picture than just the subject of giving. Um, it has to do with our whole attitude toward resources and toward wealth and God's intention toward us and His provision uh, to us. A number of years ago, I think it was back in the 70s, uh, Francis Schaeffer uh, gave a whole series of lectures on biblical economics, and he titled his lecture series, Capitalism with Compassion. And uh, he took just a number of lectures to explain how the Old Testament, in particular in the economy of Israel, was designed by God for their welfare, not only to be a blessing to them, but also to be a blessing to strangers and, and sojourners who came among them, and to those who fell into hard times in their midst. And it was just the, the whole way that uh, we should view kind of economics. Well, this subject can go in many directions. And we've been talking the last few weeks about the, the reality that you and I don't own anything. Everything that we have has come from God. In fact, one of the scripture passages in the study guide this morning uh, takes us uh, into 1 Corinthians and it asks the question, what do you have that you have not received? You know, what can, what can you say, I did this myself without any assistance? And, and the reality is, none, no one can make that claim. Because even your breath is from God. Your mind is from God. Your physical ability is from God. The status of your birth and your life is from God. Everything that you have has been given you in one way or another. And the Scripture is simply underscoring the, the reality that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. They belong to Him, as well as the sun and the moon and the stars and, and all the fields of the earth. They all belong to God, and He is the owner, and He has made us managers. We are those who, under His Lordship, manage what He has graciously given. Now, sin has obviously marred that relationship. And we find ourselves, as human beings, grasping for everything we can get our clutches on, on this planet, and uh, trying to seek all these kinds of things that will give us status or wealth or advantage or, or just fun or whatever it is, oftentimes without the awareness that God has made us managers of His blessing. Well, eventually we have to come to the question of how do we recognize that management trust? How do we recognize that stewardship? And the subject of giving arises because throughout the Scripture, the, the way that we demonstrate outwardly and, and physically our conviction that God has blessed us is by giving a portion back to Him. Now, 
immediately, when you talk about giving, what's the word that comes to mind? Tithing. Everybody thinks of tithing. Do what? <laughs> What'd you say? Money. money. <laughs> okay. And, and what? And what do you use the money for? But to give a tithe or something, you know. And what does the word tithing mean? A tenth. So, I mean, as soon as we touch on the subject, the term tithe comes up, and most people know that tithe means a tenth. And the reason for that is, is because um, the church makes sure it talks about it in one way or another. In fact, I'm probably one of the exceptions to that rule because I don't say a lot about it. Um, but um, everyone recognizes that as soon as you start talking about giving, you start talking about tithing. As soon as you start talking about tithing, um, we recognize that the term means a tenth. And the question that naturally arises is, where did that come from? You know, where do we get this idea? Where did this tenth notion come from? And what I want to do is take us back in Scripture a little bit this morning and get some of the background for this because it's really kind of interesting. In Genesis, not in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy where the law is dealt with, but in Genesis, which is the backdrop, the historical development of the people of Israel, we find two instances that kind of stand out from the text and tell us about the tithe. The first one is in Genesis 14, where Abraham, he's still known as Abram in that particular time, but we know him as Abraham. Abraham has had an experience of having to go and rescue his nephew Lot. Do you remember a little bit about the story? Uh, when Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees, Lot went with him, and they went out to this place that God was going to show them. Well, they hadn't been out there very long, kind of looking around, when uh, Abraham and Lot, uh, their, their herdsmen, their shepherds, began to fuss with one another because they kept banging into each other. There was, didn't seem to be enough room for them both. And so Abram said, uh, you know what, Lot, you pick whatever you want. You can just pick the area that you'd like to have, and whatever you pick, we'll go another direction. And God's peace be on you, and God's blessing. And so Lot kind of looked down into the fertile valley near Sodom and Gomorrah, and he looked at how lush it was and how wonderful the pastures were, and besides that, there was kind of good nightlife in Sodom. I don't know if he knew what it was all about yet, but, but he kind of looked at that whole situation. He says, I want to go there. And Abram said, okay, go on, and then we're going to go find our place somewhere else. And after Lot left, God came to Abram and said, Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation Look out, all the land that you see I'm going to give to you. This is going to be the place of your inheritance. You have chosen well. Uh, my hand is on you. And so that separation took place. Well, at this particular season, after this had occurred, some uh, kings from another region, raiders, came down into that great fertile valley where Lot was living and overthrew five of the cities and took you know everybody captive and took all their stuff away, and news came to Abram that his nephew Lot had been captured along with Lot's wife and the family and all of their possessions, and the the kings of the valley had not been able to resist the, the raiding parties, and so uh, they'd been carried off. And Abraham, in Genesis 14, 
uh, makes this prayer. He says, God, I want you to bless me. I want you to give me uh, into my hand the, the enemy that has taken Lot away. And we're going to get our family together. And Abraham called some of his uh, powerful leaders that were kind of in his larger family unit. He called some of the guys together. They got their men together. And they went out and they recaptured Lot. They defeated the raiding kings. They recaptured Lot and his family and all the people of the cities and all the spoils and all the wealth. And, you know, they're coming home. And in Genesis 14, we have the picture toward the end of the chapter of Abram returning with Lot and his family. It picks up the story in verse 17 of Genesis 14. After his return from the defeat of Shadrach and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said... Now, before I go any further, let me just tell you about Melchizedek. His name means the king or prince of righteousness. He's from the, the, the place of peace, king of Shalem or peace. There's a lot of symbolism in this guy's name. And notice what he brings out, bread and wine. So there's some foreshadowing here, even of the cross. Now, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Melchizedek had neither father nor mother. He's not saying, literally, that Melchizedek is necessarily an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. He's not necessarily saying that. He's just saying we don't know what his lineage is. Although, uh, there's all kinds of symbolism wrapped up in this fellow. But one of the things we do know is that even though he was not with Abraham, he was a worshiper of the one true God. Because the God he worships, God Most High, El Elyon, is the name of Almighty God in the book of Genesis. And this is the same God that Abraham follows. So we know that they're following the same God. And that he is a king of God Most High and also a priest of the Most High God. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham... And he says this, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Notice that he recognizes God's ownership of everything. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He recognizes that Abram's success has come from the good hand of God and God's grace. And Abraham gives to him a tenth of everything. If you're reading in Genesis, it, some of the antecedents get lost and it gets a little confusing. But if you read Hebrews chapter 7 from verses 1 through 6, it explains all of this from the New Testament perspective in, in quite some detail. And it explains that Abraham, in verse um, 20, gave to Melchizedek a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. In other words, Abram, you can have all the stuff you got back, just let me have the people. And Abram says to the king of Solomon, uh, of so oh, Sodom, <laughs> that's all right, I, the first hour I was calling it something else, now I've fixed that part and i got a new problem. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal thong 
or anything that is yours for fear that you would say, I have made Abram rich. (laughs) I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Anir, Eskol, and Mamre, let them take their share. So we have a story here of Abram under the grace of God going to recover Lot and his family, coming back successfully with them, meeting Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and the priest of God, and giving to him 10% of everything that he has recovered. Now, what's interesting about this is, it seems like it was a somewhat common practice. There's nothing in the text to suggest, wow, here's a new idea. It seems as though Abram is just responding in a way that is normal when God blesses him. This is what he does. And in this case, here's Melchizedek, a representative of God. He gives him a tenth of everything that he received. There's no mention that this is a brand new concept. And when we go to Hebrews and we look at it very carefully, although the writer of Hebrews is making a different point, the point that the writer of Hebrews is underscoring, among others, is Abraham gave a tithe before there was a law. And he gave it to someone who was not of the lineage and heritage of Israel. So in other words, he recognized that a tenth of this belonged to God, and he honored God with the tenth portion, not under the law, and not to a Levite. There's a principle here that predates the law. The next occasion we find is in Genesis chapter 28. And in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob, who is the grandson of Abram, remember Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob and Esau were brothers. They had a falling out. Mom didn't help the situation. Jacob is running away from home. He's going back to his mother's family. He's hoping to find a wife and also stay gone long enough to let Esau cool down a little bit. Uh, He's got all these things in his agenda. And by the way, Jacob is not what I would call a believer at this point. He's grown up in Abram and Isaac's home. He knows their faith, he knows their back, he knows who their God is. But I would not say from the story that Jacob is a committed follower of God at this point in his life. He just knows that he left town with only the clothes on his back. And he's headed to another country that he hasn't seen. And he gets to this place called Luz. And he lays down and goes to sleep with his head on a rock. That may have had more to do with the story than we know. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, he goes to sleep with his head on a rock and he has a dream. And in his dream he sees heaven open up and he sees a ladder and he, he has a sense of angels ascending and descending and he has a sense of God's presence. And when he wakes up in the morning he's like, wow, this, this God is in this place. 
This must be the house of God. He renames the place Bethel, which means house of God. And in the midst of that situation, he takes the rock he slept on, he sets it aside, he pours oil over it, he consecrates it, he says, I'm building an altar to the Lord. I've met God in this place. And then he gives this prayer. He says, Lord, if you will go with me, if you will bless me, if you will meet my needs, if you will take care of me while I'm gone and and provide for me, then I will honor you with a tenth of everything that I get. And you will be my God. And I will serve you. You see, that's why I'm saying I don't think he's quite there yet, but he's kind of on the path. And when he does this, what he's saying is, God, I'm trusting you. And if you will meet me and prove yourself to me, I will honor you with 10% of everything that I receive. Once again, this seems like a natural response. This is not unusual. It's almost like, well, I know what to do here. And so he makes this commitment. And, uh, and in fact, God does bless him, and he does become a believer as we follow his life a little further. He does become a believer. But the point I'm underscoring in these things is many times people, when you bring up the subject of tithe, the common objection is, That is a principle that's under the law. That's a part of the law, and we're free from the law. And I want us to see this morning that the concept of giving the 10% to God predates the law and goes past the law. We find it throughout Scripture as a recognition of, of acknowledging, God, you have given this to me. All of this. I recognize your ownership by returning a portion of it to you. And I've given you there in the study guide under number three of letter A, a number of scripture references that you can go to and and you can look up if, if you wish and read all those different passages. But all the way at the end of the New Testament, at the end of the Old Testament, when we come to the book of Malachi, it's one more that I want to bring out to us this morning. By the time we come to the end of the Old Testament, the nation of Israel has been formed, built a kingdom, lost, divided. Israel has all but disappeared from the face of the earth. The northern ten tribes, the southern tribes have been in captivity in Babylon. They got the idolatry thing figured out, at least the external idolatry, but they still had issues of trust and faithfulness. They come back to Jerusalem. They rebuild the walls. They build the temple. They they build their houses. Now they're living back in Jerusalem. But the temple is struggling. The the funds are not adequate to to meet the needs of, of the worship center. The synagogues are suffering because they did have synagogues by those times. Economic times are tough. The people are living barely eking out their living from the from the earth and they're they're just in a hard way. It's not pleasant. They're struggling. And in the midst of that they do what many of us do. In the midst of that they kind of look at the situation, they say, Man, I can't afford to give because I can barely survive myself. I can hardly pay my bills. 
And so, in their reasoning, they stop giving the, the, the tithe. They stop tithing. And Malachi comes to them with the voice of God in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, and says, Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. And they say, how are we robbing you? I mean, don't you own everything? How can we rob you? And he says, in tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse because you're robbing me the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground or the vine in the field will cast its grapes and all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord. Now, if you read all of the Levitical laws about tithing, you realize that the tithe, and I'm going to get into this next week, this is this morning the what and the why, and next week I'm going to talk about the where and the how. But jumping ahead just for a moment, if you read the book of Leviticus, you find that they were to bring the tithe to the temple, and there was a, there was a place to store the excess. And the purpose had, it was actually multiple purposes. One of them was to take care of the priests and Levites, because they were not given a portion of the land, as the other tribes were. But another reason was because there were poor in the land that needed food, that, that were hungry. And the temple was a place to bring the tithe so that sojourners and strangers and, and the people in trouble could have resources. It was a way of the distribution of wealth. And so the temple was the central focus of that. And God says, you're robbing me. Because you're not bringing what I've asked you to bring as an act of worship. And as a consequence, you're struggling. Your, your crops are not doing well. There's famine. There's devourers. There's pests. You're having trouble. Test me. Put me to the test. Give me the tithe and see if I will not bless you. Now, prosperity preachers have ruined this passage. Just ruined it. Makes me sad. Because we almost don't want to talk about it. Because they've made such a mess of it. What this verse is not saying is, you give 10% and God will give you that cruise out of Hawaii. That is not what this verse is saying. In fact, if you read it closely, they're struggling to, to make ends meet, and God is promising to care for them. Okay, He's not telling them cruises, you know, and, and three-week vacations, whatever. He's talking to them about food and clothes that they're having a tr hard time paying for. The other thing is, this is not a matter of giving money. This is a matter of faith. And that's important to recognize. 
because the tithe is always a matter of faith. More than anything else, it says, God, I trust you. I believe that if I give you, and and I'm not there yet, but the next section of the outline, I'll just jump into it. If I give you the first fruits of your blessing to me, I believe there's going to be more. I believe you're going to take care of me. I mean, think about it, because if you go back and you you look in the Scriptures, and I could take you to the places in the Bible, uh, Exodus 23, verse 19 is one of them. You shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. Give me the first, give me the best. That's what you're to give. What do you do when you do that? I mean, you've been waiting all summer for the harvest. It's finally come. And and you go out, and you know how some comes to fruit just a little ahead of everything else? And, and it's usually, boy, you've got the best nutrients, the best ever. It, this, wow, this is great stuff. And God says, I want you to take that and bring it to my house. I want the best, and I want the first. And when you do that, you are basically saying, God, I'm trusting you that there's going to be more. I'm counting on the fact that you're going to provide for me. Now, there's some misnomers about the tithe that I would like to clear up because people have mistaken notions. I've said this before, I want to say it again this morning. If you give away 10% of your income, what do you have? You have 90% left. You're minus 10%. You know, there's nothing in the scripture that says, if I give a dime, God is going to give me a dollar. The scripture says, when you get the dollar, you give God a dime. That's what it says. It, It works the other way around. It is a matter of faith to do so. It is recognizing, first of all, that however you got it, and whether it came in the form of money or a check, or it came in the form of some other kind of blessing, that it has come from God. And by giving that cream of the crop, you are saying, God, I recognize you as the giver. Now, the other thing that comes into play here is, if you have that kind of faith and you take your checkbook and your life and your expenses and all the things you do, and you bring them under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and you pray over it, there is great benefit in allowing God to manage your life. And to bless you. Many people are in trouble today because they spent money they didn't have. On things they didn't need. For all kinds of reasons. And what God is promising is if you make me Lord of all and recognize my Lordship, I will give you guidance and I will give you direction. 
part of the blessing of God under his lordship comes from the management of the Holy Spirit. It comes from the wise use of that portion that is still his, but under our control, so to speak, as managers. So that what God is promising through Malachi to those people in that moment of time, and I, some of you may be frustrated with me at this, but I think if we take that out of context and try to apply it unilaterally in every situation, we can get into trouble. God is saying to those people in that time, in Malachi's day, if you put me to the test, I will meet you and I will bless you. But there is a general principle here that says if we honor God from the first fruits of all that He gives us, and we submit to His Lordship, He will bless us and guide us and direct us. And that can come in a myriad of ways. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get a check from out of the blue. Although, I will tell you, a a few weeks ago, um, I had some circumstances that unexpected uh, needs came up, and I had to provide some assistance, and I spent a lot of money uh, a month or so ago, and I was praying over that, and a check did come out of nowhere. You know, it just came out of nowhere. It wasn't nowhere, nowhere. It was just totally unexpected. And, um, and then God blesses in other ways. So I'm not saying, I'm not ruling that out. But God may lead you to bargains. He may bless your labor. He may do other things that you, you can't necessarily make the direct equation, I did this, I got this. But what you can see is the hand of God upon your life when you trust Him. And you give the first fruits of the recognition of His ministry in your life. He has a way of taking care of you that is pretty remarkable. It's pretty remarkable. And it doesn't mean that you're going to get wealthy and have the mansion, uh, you know, in the exclusive neighborhood and the, and the expensive automobile. In fact, that, that may be hard to explain to Jesus someday, you know, if, uh, if he asks you to give an account. And he will. One day we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if I read my Bible correctly, I'm not going to deal with sin there, because sin has already been dealt with under the cross. What's going to happen in the judgment seat of Christ is my life is going to be evaluated in terms of its eternal significance and contribution. And I'm not talking about money now, I'm talking about the fact, did the Holy Spirit have the freedom to use me to accomplish His purposes on this planet during my lifetime. Because Jesus said, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where they can corrode and deteriorate or be stolen. He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. 
All right, treasure in heaven is not directly money, but treasure in heaven is what happens when the Holy Spirit is free to use my life for whatever He wants. And one day I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and what's going to be there with me is the sum total of what I have invested by the Holy Spirit in the kingdom. And some people are going to find that the only thing that escapes the fire, the testing fire, is their skinny soul. That's it. And other people are going to find that there are treasures waiting. Not money, but blessing. To hear Jesus say, well done, well done. And so the blessing that God promises besides taking care of us and meeting our needs, the blessing that He promises is one of the eternal investment that my life made a difference, that it counted. So, in the Scripture, the principle is that a tenth belongs to God, the first fruits, the choice blessings the very beginning that we give to God as a recognition of His ownership and of His blessing. But you know, tithing is only the beginning of a hard attitude. Do you, do you, know, you know what a legalist does? We talk about legalism a lot. Okay, you know what legalism says? Okay, I owe God 10%, so I'm going to cut it to the penny. And uh, I'm going to weigh my, as Jesus said to the Pharisees, you tithe mint and cumin and so you should. Okay, I'm going to get a gram scale and measure it out to the exact 10%. I'm going to cut every, and when I'm done, then all the rest is mine. I can do with what I please. That's legalism. The scripture says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. The Lord loves someone who gives with abandon, who gives with an open heart. And under grace, and, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's a whole different dimension. It's not just a matter of, okay, did, did I give my 10% to the exact penny? It's a matter of, have I honored God in the rightful recognition of His Lordship? And now is my life open to the Holy Spirit still to do whatever He chooses? In whatever way he chooses. In the scriptures, you'll find mention of love offerings and thank offerings. You can read some of the passages that I've given down there. Beyond the tithe, what do you do when you just God just blesses your socks off and you say, Wow, I just want to I just want to say thanks. Okay, there's an opportunity to do that. There's an opportunity to give out of out of the abundance of your wealth. Because God has given you such blessing. And you say, I want to just, I just want to praise God and, and offer this offering. But it also means generous hospitality. You realize the car you drive is not yours. The home you live in is not yours. The food on your table has been given to you. How do you think in those terms? How do you think about those things? You know... My sons can tell you growing up in our home that we've always had a rule. If you're at my house at dinner time, you eat. We don't squirrel it away and wait for you to leave. 
you know, or we don't fit. If you're at my house when it's time to eat, you eat. We may have to cut the portions thinner, you know, or as my grandmother used to say, add some water to the soup. But, but you eat because we want you to feel at home and feel welcome. And if God has blessed us, no one is going to sit around my house at mealtime and miss a meal. So, now you know, if you're hungry, show up. <laughs> we eat around 7.30, 8 o'clock, just if you can wait that long. Um, but, but that's just a principle. Having a generous heart. You know, one of the things that I've always found incongruent, let me just point this out, it's nothing to do with tithing per se, but it has to do with a, a hard attitude of generosity. Um, when, when you go in a restaurant, how do you calculate the gratuity for the server? Do you get out your calculator and figure it to the penny of 10% or 15%? You know, most servers don't make minimum wage because they're expected to gain some of their income through their gratuities. And I don't know how in the world a Christian can hope to have a positive testimony or share Christ and then be chintzy with a tip. That's just incongruent to me. Um, you know, I, a few years ago, this is kind of a funny story, but we had our annual council meeting in, uh, I think it was Rochester, New York. And, you know, they kind of counted on conventions there. And all the restaurants you went in had big bars. And here we are, 3,500 Christian Missionary Alliance people who don't drink. And they're dying. This town that is counting on convention center income, after a while, it was palpable. You could tell. We'd walk into a restaurant and people did not want to serve us. Because we weren't drinking. And that's a huge part of the tab, and it's a huge part of the tip. And, you know, I realized, it kind of put two and two together, realized what was going on. And I asked one of the servers one day about that. I said, tell me something. I said, we're, we're getting a lot of strange looks around here. Um, are you suffering because we're not consuming alcohol? And she said, we really are. She said, well, I, she said, our income is way, way down. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. You know, and I told a couple of services different places. I said, when I come to your place, I've got to eat here all week. <laughs> when I come to your place, I'm going to tip you as if I had purchased alcohol. Because you're losing that money. I don't want you to lose that money. There has to be an attitude of, of generosity in our lives that says we're grateful people and we want to bless others. It's not just with money. It's with time. It's with, it's with our hearts. It's with our lives. Are we available to people? Are we hospitable to people? Are we willing to go the extra mile to be a blessing to someone else? Um, and I and I can tell you something else too. Uh, years ago, I was doing street witnessing on what was literally Skid Row in West Palm Beach, Florida. 
where the whole street was taken up with alcoholics and drug addicts and prostitutes. I mean, it was, just, it was, it was really a terrible, terrible section of town. And I normally made it my policy just only to put my driver's license in my pocket for identification in case the coroner needed it. But, um, you know, I would go down there to, to share my faith in Christ, and uh, I didn't take any money with me. And on this one occasion, I forgot my, my principal, and I had my wallet in my pocket. And uh, a fellow in the street, you know, beggar came up and asked me for a dollar to buy a hot dog. And um, I thought, what am I going to do? The scripture says, give to him who asks of you. And I'm thinking, here's a guy who's telling me he's hungry. And I'm down here telling him about Jesus. What can I do? I know he's not hungry. Well, he might be hungry, but he didn't want a hot dog. I mean, I knew that. And so, what can I do? And I'm, and I'm just kind of had one of those quick prayers like Nehemiah. Oh, Lord, what do I do? And what I sensed the Holy Spirit saying was, give him the dollar, but tell him it's for me. And so that's what I did. I took the dollar out of my pocket and I handed it to him. I said, before I let it go, I said, this dollar is God's. Belongs to him. And he wants you to have it because he does not want you to be hungry. So I want you to know, as I give this to you, it is from the Lord who sees your situation and does not want you to be hungry. Here's the dollar. And he took the dollar and he looked at it and he gave it back. And he says, I wasn't going to spend that on food. And I put it back in my pocket. And I told him about the love of God. And, and was able to share Christ with him. We need to be open to the Holy Spirit to lead us in all circumstances and situations. However He directs us with our time, with our resources, or whatever it is that we have, it's not just the tenth part. That's where it starts in honoring God's ownership, but it carries out through the rest of our life and everything that we do in how we express our gracious and benevolent God by being gracious and benevolent. Let me just wrap up by saying that we need to give with a pure heart without agenda under the Lordship of Christ. You know, there's a lot of reasons why people give, and they're not always good. Um, some people want to be recognized. You ever go in these public buildings, charitable organizations, go in the hospital, go in the YMCA, go in places, and you see the names on the plaques. You know, go to the Botanic Gardens, and these people gave between 500000 and a million dollars. You see those donors. And these people gave between 250000 and 500000 And You know, and uh, those people like their names there. They want to be seen. And there are people in the church that are no different. They want to have their name recognized. They want to be known for what they give. Jesus makes it very plain in the Gospels. Don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. When you give, you give secretly. I, I've explained before, I don't know what you give. 
I, every once in a while, somebody in a situation will hand me their tithe check or something and say, put this in the offering for me. And I don't mind doing that. And typically, unless it's just right in front of my face, I don't even open to see how much it is. But even so, once in a great while, that doesn't give me a picture of their giving. I don't know what you give. I don't want to know what you give. I don't want anybody else to know what you give. And hopefully you don't want to broadcast what you give. That's between you and the Lord. We have to give in a way that does not seek to gain influence or control because we've given. Timothy, Paul says to Timothy about people who are like that, that they, they're, they're trying through their gift to gain some influence, to gain some control. You know, almost every church conference at some point or another when it's talking about leadership in a local church, we'll talk about dealing with a church boss. You know who the church boss is? Well, I know who he's supposed to be. Supposed to be Jesus. But a lot of times congregations have bosses. Do you know who the boss is? It's the person that everyone secretly knows is in charge of everything. You know, and it's typically not the pastor. It's somebody on the board, somebody in leadership, somebody that's given a lot of money, somebody that has a lot of influence, and that person basically uh, uses their influence and uses their giving, and they usually want the pastor to know how much they've given. Because uh, they, they want him to know that if he makes trouble for them, they're going to make trouble for him, and they could take their money and leave. And, and so they use that as a way of kind of controlling the church. I went to a conference one time, and it made me so angry I almost walked out because the person leading the conference, and if I mentioned your name, his name, you'd know him because he's nationally known and respected. And what he said was, when you find those kind of people, the way you need to handle them is you need to make friends with them, you need to kind of get next to them. Uh, and he said when he was pastoring in Indiana, he found out who the church boss was, and so whenever there was a board meeting coming up, of course this guy was on the board, He'd go visit his farm, he'd help him, you know, clean the stalls or whatever, fork the hay or whatever needed to be done. And he'd talk to him about his dreams and ideas. And he said, this, this, I'd get this old fella, he said, I got him right in my back pocket. I'd get him to come around to my viewpoint, and then we'd come to the board meeting, and he would lead the recommendations as if he thought of them, and he was doing what I wanted all along. And I just made sure that I just gave him his strokes. And I just wanted to go, unbelievable. Where in Scripture, where in Scripture does it tell a spiritual leader to cater to someone like that and feed their ego? You want to control this church, you're going to have trouble with me. You're going to have to, because you're not in charge and neither am I. It's King Jesus and I don't care how much money you give or influence. I don't want to know, but I don't care. Could be half the offering. You want to run the church? You need to go find another church. Because you cannot give with that kind of attitude. We are all under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's something that simply cannot be tolerated. People have no reason to give for that purpose. And then some people have a secret agenda in their heart. They want to be appreciated and recognized. They don't necessarily want to control, 
They don't necessarily want to gain influence. They just want strokes. Pat me on the back. Tell me how much you love me. Acknowledge the fact that I did this for you. That's why Jesus said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And my Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, let me hasten to say, it is appropriate for us to recognize people on our initiative. It's a privilege to have Dick and Helen come this morning and say thank you. And to recognize Nary for her contribution in other times. It's a privilege to do that. But that better not be the reason why you do what you do. God who sees in secret will reward you. He's the one keeping score. And we need to have pure hearts. People sometimes get ticked off. Well, I did this and I did that and I did the other and nobody ever said thank you. Well, why would you do it? What were you expecting? Oh, you were expecting something. I see. There's something going on inside that's not right with God. Because we give as unto the Lord. The rest of us need to appreciate as unto the Lord. But the giving has to be without any strings. It's unto the Lord. Well, next week we're going to look at the, uh, the, the where and the how. But I hope that this gives you some food for thought. To go home and take this before the Lord and say, God, what does it mean for me? How do you want to deal with my life concerning this? 10% giving is not a matter of the Mosaic Law. It is a principle throughout the Scripture. It recognizes God's rightful ownership. And it recognizes our dependency upon Him and recognition of His blessing. And um, we need to let Him deal with us accordingly. Father, I pray that You would open our hearts and minds to receive your word, that you would make it plain in our lives, that we would be cheerful givers. The word is actually hilarious. That we would be cheerful givers with joyful hearts. That we would be generous and kind and gracious with all of your blessings. Lord, that you would meet us and care for us as we acknowledge your ownership that we would realize that with that comes the promise of your provision and that we would simply rest in you. For many, Lord, this is a whole readjustment of their financial management because they need to allow you to govern their whole life, not just their giving portion. And so, Father, I pray that we would come under your guidance and direction and and trust you, and believe you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.